Amen, amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. Take your Bible this morning and uh, be finding your place with me to the very first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1. And in just a moment, we'll read from verses 1 through 7. But I want to begin this morning by asking you a very personal question, only one that you probably don't want to necessarily answer out loud. So just think to yourself how you might answer this. And here's my question. What do you see when you look in the mirror? And someone says, well, pastor, it depends on the day. It depends on the mirror. The fact of the matter is we look at ourselves multiple times a day in some form or fashion. And you think about how our life is really surrounded by mirrors, whether it be the mirror in the bathroom that you used when you got ready to come to church this morning, uh, you think about the mirrors that are there in the local gym to reveal whether or not you're making progress on those New Year's resolutions. Mirrors on our vehicles to help us navigate, change lanes, park. I never really have learned to trust the backup camera that my vehicle has. I still like to look in the mirror, look back beyond my shoulder. Now, I, I, maybe one of these days I'll learn how to use that camera, but I still haven't got there yet. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Now, when you think about it, uh, there are mirrors within us as well. Now, not in a literal sense, but to use that as a metaphor, I'm talking about the way that you view your own life, the way that you see yourself. There are these internal mirrors that often create a composite picture in our minds that tell us who and what we are. You know, you'll find no shortage of blogs or books that have been written by various authors nowadays uh, telling you how to be your authentic self. In fact, that's sort of become a catchword or a phrase that we hear repeated so very often nowadays, just be your authentic self. And usually the advice to be your authentic self involves some form of self-expression uh, that stems from some internal desire that a person may have. I saw a bumper sticker not too long ago that said, the only faith that pays off is faith in yourself. Now, a lot of people live with that kind of perspective, don't they? But you see, the only thing wrong with that is that the, those mirrors are all warped. I don't know if you've ever walked into a fun house or an amusement park where you've gone in you know, to a house of mirrors and you kind of walk through the hallways and corridors and there are all these mirrors that show you some funny reflection of yourself. But all of those mirrors are warped. And so that's really kind of the way it is when you're looking simply to yourself to try to discover your authentic self and that kind of thing. Because from a biblical standpoint, none of us really begin with an accurate view of who we are. How can you even begin to be your authentic self when you don't even know what that means in the first place? Which tells me that we need a true view of ourselves, which only comes as the result of a true view of God. In order to know who you are, you first need to know who God himself is. And that's why we're given the mirror of his word. What we need is a mirror that's trustworthy. And let me tell you, in his word, there is a mirror that is trustworthy, where God has revealed to us who he is, and therefore who we are and what he wants from our lives. 
And nowhere do we see this any more clearly than in Paul's letter to the Romans. Now I want you to look with me beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 1. Paul begins by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to speak from this subject this morning, living with the right perspective. The Apostle Paul, it's evident from what he writes in his introductory remarks to the Romans, he knows exactly who he is. And the only reason that he knows exactly who he is is because he has come to know who God is through a relationship with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you'll probably notice if you try to read verse 1 through verse 7 out loud like I did just a moment ago, it's hard to do so because it's one long sentence and you have to stop and catch your breath at two or three points in between. In the Greek New Testament, verses 1 through 7 represent Paul's introductory statement to the Romans and it really is one long sentence. From his signature there in verse 1 to his address there in verse number 7. And all of the phrases in between can be somewhat confusing. And so I don't know if, you know if you remember, if you go back to school, you remember when you had to diagram sentences and subject and verb agreement and modifiers and all of that, that might be helpful when you begin breaking apart this introductory statement that Paul makes here. He introduces himself. He says two or three things about himself there in verse 1, but notice he mentions the gospel of God, which is really his subject in verses 2 through 6. And so right here in the introduction, he's letting us know what the book of Romans really is all about. It's all about the gospel. And through verse 17, he's going to use that word gospel no less than four times. Now, if you're like me, it's, it's often quick. You, you read through an introduction because you may be tempted to want to get into uh, some of the content that you find later on in the book. But we don't want to rush through Paul's introductory statements here to the Romans because packed within this introductory sentence, there are some profound theological truths as well as some wonderful practical takeaways that you and I can apply to our own Christian life. So Paul introduces himself there in verse number 1. And just from what he writes about himself there in verse 1, it's evident to me that the Apostle Paul is a man who knows who he is. He knew exactly who he was. He's a man who lives with the right perspective. Now, I want to give you a key principle up front as we look at just this verse this morning. Verse 1, uh, Paul's view of himself. And here's this key principle that you need to keep in mind. It's only when a person comes to know who Jesus is that they truly begin to know who they are. 
Only as a person comes to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is that they truly come to know and understand who they themselves are. And so it's clear here. Paul knows exactly who he is because he knows who Jesus is. And therefore, Paul knows his purpose. He's a man who's living with the right perspective. And a simple study of his life will reveal that he lived with a relentless sense of purpose, even though that had not always been the case in his life. Uh, the Apostle Paul had a greater impact on the formation of the Christian church than any other apostle. Nearly half of the New Testament bears his signature. 16 out of 28 chapters in the book of Acts all focus on Paul's life and ministry. Going all the way from his persecution of the church when he was an unbeliever, uh, covering three missionary journeys, uh, his conversion to faith, and all of that. And so Paul was the most effective missionary and church planter in history and the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Now obviously there have been a number of other opinions that various writers on Paul and commenters on Paul have made. Nietzsche referred to Paul as an ambitious man whose superstition was only equal to his cunning, a tortured man, a much-to-be-pitied man, an exceedingly unpleasant person both to himself and to others. That shouldn't be surprising that Nietzsche looked at Paul through those lens because Nietzsche, remember, he's the guy who claimed that God was dead, so I really wouldn't put too much stock in Nietzsche's opinion. Another biographer of the life of the Apostle Paul is Frederick Farrar, who sort of portrays this picture of the Apostle Paul as this uh, intellectual, lofty saint in cold stone. Someone that we can't really identify with. Sort of this unfazed hero of heroes. And so you've got all of these different perspectives, but none of those truly match the man as we know him from the Scriptures. Now, folks, what should really stand out to us from verse 1 is that Paul was not a self-appointed preacher. He's not an egomaniac on a power trip. But notice how he refers to himself. And here's his perspective on himself, his perspective on life. He simply says, I'm Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus. Isn't that a remarkable way to approach life? He says, you want to know who I am? I'm not a big shot. I'm just simply a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't start there, but that's where he ended up. I think about what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Or Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he refers to himself as the least of all the saints. Here you have this picture of a humble man of God, yet he's a man who's been an apostle, a man who's seen the risen Jesus, a man who's even had this experience where he's been caught up to the third heaven and received a vision of the glory of heaven. And I suppose he could have introduced himself to these Romans any number of ways. But listen to this description of himself. Here's how he refers to himself. I'm Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. I've been called to be an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And so for the time remaining this morning, I want us to consider those three descriptions and then make some application that's appropriate to our own experience. Number one, Paul is a man who has a sovereign master. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what's your perspective of yourself? Who are you? He would say, I am a man who has a sovereign master, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
And you see this there in that first phrase where he says, Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, it's a miracle that the very first word of Romans is Paul. Because here you have this letter that's written to a mainly Gentile church, written by a man who had lived most of his life as a racially proud Jew who never would have associated with Gentiles to begin with. And lest we forget that he was known as Paul long before he was known as Paul, he was known as Saul, as in Saul of Tarsus, which meant that he had the name of Israel's first king. If you remember Saul from the Old Testament, he was a proud man, a man who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And so early on in his life, that's how Saul of Tarsus views himself. He's a proud man, a man who's earning his way. A man who is of the tribe of Benjamin. You read what the Apostle Paul writes later in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He goes down the impressive list of credentials that he once had in his resume. And he was all so proud about all of that in the past. And so he probably views himself as just this proud man uh, early on in his life. Now I want you to go with me to the book of Acts for just a minute. Go to Acts chapter 7 where we first meet Saul of Tarsus at the stoning of Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr. And we find out, really, that the blood of the first Christian martyr spatters across Saul's cloak as he stood there in full agreement with Stephen's execution. And Luke, uh, who's the author of the book of Acts, he tells us the story in Acts chapter 7, which really consists mostly of, of Stephen's sermon as he's going through Israel's history and he's showing how Jesus really is the Messiah but how Israel had always resisted the work of God and really rejected the prophets that God had sent to her well when he says that that pretty much ticks off the Jewish Sanhedrin and verse 58 says that they cast Stephen out of the, the city and they stone him and notice Luke says that the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and as they're stoning Stephen, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. Which, by the way, have you ever considered how Stephen dies much in the same way that Jesus dies? Whereas Jesus, when he's you know, dying on the cross, his last words, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he's praying for those that are putting him to death. Lord, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now keep in mind, probably all of this is being observed by Saul of Tarsus. And the last statement there, uh, Saul approved of his execution. Eugene Peterson says it this way in the message, Saul was right there congratulating the killers. Then you get into chapter 8 and you read of how that first wave of persecution broke out against the church and Saul of Tarsus largely is the one behind it. He's a man on a mission, a mission of extermination. So that verse 3 says that he's ravaging the church. Going from house to house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Chuck Swindoll, in his fantastic study of the Apostle Paul, he writes this. All throughout our Christian lives, we've naturally adopted sort of this Christianized mental image of the Apostle Paul. I mean, after all, he's the guy that wrote the book of Romans, the Magna Carta of the Christian life. 
And based on all that he writes in the New Testament, you would think that here's a man who loved the Savior from birth, but it's not even close. Because as Saul of Tarsus, he hated the name of Jesus. So much so that he becomes this violent aggressor, persecuting, killing Christians in what he thought was allegiance to the God of heaven. And so shocking as it might seem to us, we must never forget the pit from which he came because the better we understand the darkness of Saul's past, the more we'll understand his gratitude for grace. By the way, isn't that been the testimony that you've had as a Christian? When you understand just where it was that the grace of God found you, where God came to you in your sinful condition, completely lost, completely alienated from God, without hope, without God in the world, yet God, in his mercy and grace, came to where you are and lifted you up out of that pit. How can you not be grateful for grace? And so what was Paul's past? Well, he tells us in various places all throughout the New Testament where he shares his testimony. We know that he was from Tarsus, which was a city in Asia Minor, It was a well-to-do leading city, uh, sort of a cosmopolitan area of culture and importance. In fact, if you look it up on a map, you'll notice that, that Tarsus was sort of at a crossroads between east and west, so that Uh, As a young man, Saul of Tarsus is growing up, not in the middle of nowhere, but he's a very cultured individual. His family are respectable and well-to-do. And Saul becomes the beneficiary of this rich intellectual and religious heritage. John Pollock says it this way, his parents were Pharisees, member of the party, most fervent in Jewish nationalism and strict in obedience to the law of Moses. As such, they would have sought to guard their children against Gentile contamination. Greek ideas were despised. From infancy, he could speak Greek, but his family at home spoke the language of Judea. They looked to Jerusalem much like Islam looks to Mecca. By his 13th birthday, he would have mastered Jewish history, the poetry of the Psalms, the majestic literature of the prophets. And eventually, probably around 13, 14 years of age, Saul of Tarsus, he's sent from Tarsus to the city of Jerusalem where he's trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a leading, well-respected, influential rabbi. That's Saul of Tarsus. This proud Pharisee of Pharisees, this highly ambitious scribe and lawyer, self-motivated man who absolutely grows to despise the followers of the way the followers of the Nazarene. And yet, little did he realize how a sovereign God was going to use those events to change his life and redirect his steps, which, by the way, that's that's how it always is with grace. You're able to look back on your life, and though you didn't understand it at the time, you can see that God was, listen, the hounds of heaven were dogging your steps all along. You get to Acts chapter 9 and you read about Saul's conversion experience. Acts chapter 9 says that Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, asks for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's how Christianity was referred to early on. I like that, don't you? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
So whether they be men, whether they be women, he's seeking them out that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now listen to this. The Bible says, now as he went on his way, in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, he's, he's persecuting followers of the way. Here's a man who's going on his own way. <laughs> I like how the ESV translates that. He's going on his own way, persecuting the those who belong to the way. By the way, that's your testimony if you know Jesus. While you were living for yourself, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, committed to your way. God's grace comes to your rescue when the way himself comes to you and rescues you from that road. And so the next time we see Saul of Tarsus here in Acts chapter 9, he has this experience where Jesus appears to him. He's blinded by the majesty of the, the, just the, the radiant light of the glory of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's the voice he hears. And he says, who are you, Lord? Imagine his shock when Saul of Tarsus hears these words. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go into the city and you'll be told further instruction. Meanwhile, there's a disciple in Damascus. There's this fellow named Ananias. And the Lord appears to Ananias and says, Ananias, let me tell you about Saul of Tarsus. He's coming to you. He's, he's, uh, he's praying. He's blind. I've rocked his world. But I want you to go to him. I want you to tell him, lay hands on him, pray for him, because he's my chosen instrument who's going to serve a great purpose. And so Ananias says, uh, Lord, are we talking about the same guy here? I've heard about this guy. He's bound and determined to destroy your followers. And the Lord says to him, yeah, he's the guy. I've changed his life. I've got a plan for his life. And so that's remarkable, isn't it? That's his testimony. That's how the Lord changes Saul of Tarsus. There was a time in his life when Saul of Tarsus viewed himself as being head and shoulders above everybody else. But he's changed by the grace of God. By the time you get to Acts chapter 13, no longer is he referred to as Saul of Tarsus, but he's Paul, the apostle. More than likely, Paul is his Greek or Roman name. But you know what Paul means? Now listen to this. This is remarkable. Paul means little one, small which I believe it really reflects the heart change and the change of perspective, the life change that he's experienced where previously Saul of Tarsus was proud of himself and his own accomplishments. He had an ego bigger than the state of Texas, but now that he's met Jesus, he says, I'm the little guy. You don't know why a lot of you have relational conflict right now going on with someone else? I'll tell you why. Because you don't view yourself as the little guy. You need an experience with the grace of God that humbles you. Because when you get humbled by the grace of God, you see yourself as the little guy. That's what grace will do in a person's life. Listen, some of you are at odds right now with maybe your spouse, maybe a friend or whatever, maybe a fellow church member, simply because you want to be the big man on campus. There was a time in Saul's life when he had that mentality but it was the grace of God that changes him where he says, you know what, I'm now the little guy. 
And let me tell you how I'm going to start referring to myself. He says, I'm Paul, the little guy, the servant of Christ Jesus. Which means that now he's a man who has a sovereign master. And I love the word that he uses there, translated servant. If you go back to Romans 1, uh, it's the word doulos in Greek. In fact, servant may be a softer term in English because that Greek term may be a little bit stronger than the word servant accurately conveys. Maybe a better equivalent of doulos in English would be the word slave. Now we bristle at that term. We sort of recoil back from that term simply because we associate slavery with its, its terrible, horrible expression in the history of our own nation where it was race-based and, and it was oppressive and a dehumanizing system. But you see, the fact of the matter is, don't miss out what the Apostle Paul is saying here when he says, I am the doulos of Jesus Christ. That's something that his readers would have easily identified with. Because upwards of, uh, if, if, if the population of Rome was around 2 million, did you know that upwards of a third of those in Rome were slaves? They knew exactly what slavery was. They knew exactly what it means when Paul is saying, I'm the doulos of Jesus Christ. He's not saying I'm serving Jesus on my own terms. No, he's saying he's bought me for himself. He's my master. I belong to him. He's the one now who calls the shots in my life. So right out of the gate, here's what Paul is saying. I'm the little guy, and I answer to the big guy. I am his humble servant. I am his doulos. I am his bond slave. In fact, he uses this term. uh, The New Testament uses this term roughly 127 times, many of which come from Paul's own pen when he refers to himself as the bond slave, the doulos of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something, folks. This flies in the face of what we're taught in our own culture where we pride ourselves, an individual prides themselves on self-autonomy and freedom. But you want to know what the greatest freedom truly is? It's, 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 it's the freedom that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord. There is no greater freedom than slavery to Christ. It's not oppressive. It's not dehumanizing. If you want to have the right perspective, listen, you'll only discover it as you take his yoke upon you. Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden light. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, listen to this. Paul says to believers, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The world around us says, well, it's my body, my choice. I get to do what I please with my body. But listen, that's no way to live if you're a Christian. Because if you know Jesus Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. He purchased you with a price. You say, what was that price? Well, Peter writes about that when he says that we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Not with silver, not with gold. But we've been purchased with the precious price of the Savior's own blood. And so Paul recognizes that he is a doulos of Christ, someone who's been purchased by Christ He's a man with a master. Let me ask you a question. Are you a man, are you a woman with a master? All of us are slaves of something, whether we admit it or not. 
Some of you are enslaved to the opinions of other people. You can't get past the fact of what other people might say or what other people might think. That's, a, that's an oppressive way to live your life, by the way. Others of you, perhaps you're slaves to your own passions. All of us, we're, we have a master. We're a slave of something. In the New Testament, with vivid language, and Paul writes about this in chapter 6 of Romans, but, but, but all of us come into this world as the slaves of sin. But Jesus has come to set us free. And there's no greater freedom than being a doulos of Jesus Christ. So Paul is a man who has a sovereign master. Now, that's his perspective. Notice the second thing. Not only does he have a master, but Paul wants us to know that he's a man with a specific mission. Notice what else he says there in verse number one. He says, I'm Paul, the doulos, the bond slave of Christ Jesus, but now here's his mission, called to be an apostle. Kletos is the word in Greek, called. The master whom I serve, he's now given me a mission and a sense of purpose in this life. Apostle, that's a word that means uh, one sent out on a mission which means Paul has not been sent out in sort of this general sense or with a vague objective, but he's been given a very specific purpose in life, a very specific mission. Now, for him, it was the calling of apostle. Now, there's a sense in which there is an apostolic call for every one of us who are in Jesus Christ. That is, we're sent to be on mission with him in the world. But to be an apostle in, in, in terms of the office was something that was only true of those men in the first century whom the Lord himself appointed, uh, who had personally witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the original 12, they are disciples, but they're apostles because two things are true about them. Jesus himself called them, and then the second thing that's true, they saw him as risen Lord. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And even though Paul, he's not a member of the original 12, he too is an apostle because he is called specifically by Jesus on the road to Damascus where he too becomes an eyewitness of the resurrection. He sees the risen Jesus. You know, a lot of skeptics, they don't know what to do with the conversion and the testimony of the apostle Paul. I was reading about a couple of guys, I guess it was in the 1800s, they were trying to set out to disprove Two events that the New Testament says without apology happened. Two historical events. The first one being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second being the conversion of the Apostle Paul. One of these guys, he's a brilliant lawyer. He says, well, I'm going to write about the resurrection and I'm going to try to disprove the resurrection. His friend, who's also a brilliant lawyer, says, well, I'm going to write to try to disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. After some time, they both compile their works they get back together. One guy says to the other, says, uh, er, we've got a problem. First guy says, well, what's the deal? He says, I've studied the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I've come to believe that it really happened. I've become a believer. The second guy says, well, I'm glad you, you said that because I've been studying the life of Saul of Tarsus and his conversion, and I've come to experience and believe the same thing that he's come to believe. I think his life was genuinely changed by the risen Jesus, and I too have become a believer in Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. 
And so Saul of Tarsus, he's Paul the apostle. He's someone who's been commissioned by Jesus. He's someone who's experienced the resurrection of Jesus. He's seen it as an eyewitness. And now he has this specific mission that the Lord has called him to. Now, let me just make some application here for just a second. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Are you living your life with a sense of real purpose? Because the thing is, each of us, we need to approach life with a sense of calling. If you're a believer in Jesus, it's not by accident that you have the family that you have, the neighbors that you have, the career path, perhaps, that you've chosen for yourself, your vocation. What if you really began looking at your vocation through the lens and with the language of calling? Where you recognize that God has you right where you are to make much of his name for the sake of his glory and for the sake of the gospel. He wants to use you as a witness right where you are. And some of you, listen, God may call to some specific tasks such as vocational missions. Some of you men, God may really be wrestling and doing a number with your heart calling you to preach and to pastor. I still believe that God does that. Donald Gray Barnhouse was telling a group of young men one day about becoming ministers and pastors. He says, guys, don't do it if you can help it. If you could be satisfied doing anything else, then do that. But if for you there was what Paul experienced, this cry from the heart, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, then move forward with a sense of that call on your life. So here's this man whose perspective is radically changed. He's got a sovereign master. He's been given a specific mission. And then notice third, Paul is a man with a saving message. He says, I'm Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And here it is. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. So he's been saved, he's sent, and now he's set apart with purpose. And that message... The message of the gospel is what's changed his life. He's now set apart for it. In fact, the word that he uses there, he uses a Greek term, aphorizo, which we get the word horizon from that word. And literally, it means to be off-horizoned. So that the idea that's implicit within that term, it's of being transferred from one horizon to the next. So in other words, here's what Paul could say. He says, for the better part of my life, I lived within this circle. I lived within this little bubble, bounded by a horizon that I could not cross. But you see, then it was the Lord Jesus who confronted me and changed me and saved me while on the road to Damascus where I was intending to persecute and kill his followers. But in his grace, by means of his gospel and his saving message, he's transported me now by faith to a world that was far beyond my little horizon. I've been moved from one circle of existence to another. That's what that word means, set apart, aphorizo. It's emphasizing God's grace and how God's action of setting him apart, this is what continually shapes who he is. He uses this word elsewhere. In fact, if you go to Galatians chapter 1 for just a moment, let me show you something. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. And this is one of those passages where, where he's giving his testimony and he says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So listen, listen to his words here. If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He's saying there was a time in my life when I was Saul of Tarsus. This was my old horizon. I was trying to please the religious establishment in Jerusalem. I was trying to please the traditions of my elders and that kind of thing. And I thought that by persecuting the followers of Jesus, I was being a good Pharisee. And I thought that I had secured righteousness by means of my own efforts. That was my old horizon. He says in verse 11, But I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel that was preached to me or by me, it's not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, you heard about my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many in my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, He's saying, I've been brought into a new horizon by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that now I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And then I returned again to Damascus. He says, then after three years... I went to Jerusalem and I got up with Peter and remained with him for 15 days. I didn't see any of the other apostles but James, the Lord's own brother. He says, I'm telling you the truth. It was then that I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. But they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy He's a man with a new message. It's interesting. God takes his personality. He doesn't lose his personality when he comes to faith in Jesus. But God takes all those good parts of him that, 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 that were true of him. And now they've been baptized in the grace of God. And God's redirected his passion. And God's redirected his zeal. And now he's, oh, he's living to make disciples. He's living for the glory of God. And he understands that because you know what he does for three years after he gets saved? He says, I went to Arabia, and I believe, here's what I believe happened in his life. I believe that somehow, somewhere in obscurity, he goes back through those Old Testament scriptures. He begins to pour over those Old Testament scriptures. And the Holy Spirit now is opening his eyes and opening his mind and opening his heart to where now, through every prophecy throughout the Old Testament, he begins to see Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And so now, guess what's happened in his life? He's been given a new horizon. And some of you are living under an old horizon this morning. But God wants to give you a brand new horizon as a gift of his grace through faith in his son Jesus. Let me give you two closing points of application and then I'll close with this. The first point is the dividing line between a saint and a sinner is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. 
What made all the difference in, in Paul's life? How does he have this perspective now where he can say, I am Paul the servant, the doulos, the slave of Jesus? Where formerly, his former perspective, he hated Jesus. What made the difference? Only one thing made the difference, and it's the grace of God in his life. So that now he could refer to himself as Saint Paul. Not simply because he was perfect, but because he had been set apart and had been given a new horizon. That's what it means. And every believer in Jesus is a saint. Did you know that you're a saint if you know Christ? Saint Eddie right here on the second pew. Think about it. I wouldn't advertise that. I wouldn't go around introducing yourself as saint because folks won't know how to interpret that. But biblically, it's true. If you know Jesus, you are a saint. You've been set apart by God for himself. That's your new horizon. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that God is in this business of taking those who are sinners and changing them by his grace, transforming them into saints and giving them a brand new horizon. And then the second point of application that I would give you is this. Not only is the dividing line between sinner and saint grace, but that grace, God's grace, it's filled with purpose for your life. God wants for us so much more than we ever want for ourselves. His grace is filled with purpose in your life. You might feel like you're unknown. You might feel like you're not able to make an impact. You might feel like the pressures of life have really got you weighed down. Maybe you're discouraged. Listen, it ought to encourage you to know that God's grace for you and God's grace in your life, it's filled with purpose for your life. Paul is a man with perspective. He's a man with purpose now that he's come to know Jesus. And that's what the grace of God brings to our life. Perspective and purpose. And that grace truly is amazing. In my library, I have a, an old commentary on the book of Romans that was written by a man by the name of William R. Newell. And William Newell, he was born in 1868. His childhood was surrounded by the ministry. His father was a pastor. But as far as his testimony goes, William Newell was a troubled young man. His teenage years were, were spent somewhat of a rebellious phase. His father was concerned for his son and concerned that his life would be wasted. Well, the good news is, William Newell later came to faith in Jesus Christ as a young man. He surrendered to the ministry himself. And later, he became the superintendent of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Well, it was on one occasion in 1895. William Newell was on his way to teach a class there at the Institute, and he had been working on something that was very important to him. And he had written out on a piece of paper, in poetic form, his own testimony. And so he ran into Daniel Towner, who was over the music department at the time, and he handed Towner the piece of paper and said, you know, this, this needs a really good tune to go along with it. Later on, Daniel Towner found him and said, you know, I was so smitten with the poem that you gave me. He said, I immediately sat down at my piano and began composing this tune. And here's, here's the tune and here is the lyrics. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. 
Knowing not, it was for me he died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. And there, my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That was William Newell's testimony. That was Paul the Apostle's testimony. He had been given a brand new horizon. And if you know Christ, that's your testimony. And God's grace gives you a brand new perspective, a brand new horizon. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Listen, you've come in this morning, maybe you say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. But I want to be. Then my friend, listen, right there where you are, in an attitude of repentance and faith, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your faith and your trust in him. Don't put your faith and your confidence in your own moral performance. That was Saul of Tarsus. That was his old horizon. All about self. But you see, when he came to know Jesus, when he truly met Jesus, he was given a new horizon. And for the rest of his life, he would sing about the wonderful grace of God that he's going to write about in 16 chapters in Romans. And you can have that same testimony. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to pray in just a moment. We're going to sing. If you need to respond as we sing this morning, our pastors will be right here and be available. You say, you know, I want to talk to you about baptism, membership in the church. Maybe you just need to come and pray for someone or something that is near and dear to your heart. Father, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful for the perspective that only the grace of God and the gospel of God can bring a person. And Lord, as we see it illustrated so vividly in the life of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, not through any merit or effort of his own, but only the grace of God. And Lord, every single person in Christ has the testimony whereby they've been taken from one old horizon and they've been given a brand new horizon. If any man be in Christ, he's a brand new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.